The Old Testament of our Bible is sometimes daunting. Scan the pages of the good book and you will hear of genocide, violence, polygamy, and other hard-to-handle issues. Some might think the God of the Old Testament was different than our caring and compassionate Jesus. They are wrong. Our God is the God of the Old and the New Testament, whether we always understand it or not. So why read the Old Testament? It tells us where we've been, it tells us where we're going. We see the beauty of God's love, and it swells with prophecies about Jesus. We love the Old Testament because Jesus loves it. Join us as we continue our ongoing series, Origins, Studying the Bible Jesus Read. All right, well, welcome. It's good to hear the voice of Miss Dorothy even when the weather is uh, like this, and I know that that means her arthritis, she's feeling it. And I know like, she's not the only one with arthritis in the room, so if you guys are feeling it, you know, feel free to shout amen. Um, but I'm just glad to be here. I'm glad to be back. You guys know I was, I was out of town. I was in Alabama for a while, which, was, uh, which is a new experience for me. Um, but I just, I'll just tell you, as soon as wheels were up on the plane, I just want to be back home. Like, I love where we live, but I love the people here. You know, I almost feel like you could just transport all these people just any, anywhere, and I would love that place. And it's, it's because of you. And um, I, I, I love you guys. That's okay. I'm just going to keep going. Uh, translation Buenos dias. Uh, si necesita escuchar el sermón en español, ten, tenemos dispositivos de traducción para usted al costado de la sala. Um, today we're going to be in Genesis 37. And I want to let you know we have Bibles available in the back corner. Um, we have nice ones in boxes. I, I got one right here to show you. Um, these cost us about 20 bucks each. And um, if you really need a good Bible, we want you to have it. That means you could throw in 10 bucks into the offering or you could take it. Um, but we really want our people to have a, a good Bible with uh, uh, translation or with uh, some help for you. So that's there. That's available if you want it. It's all good. Um, so Genesis 37 is where we're going to be. And I want you to I don't know how to do this, but basically I made my own translation for Genesis 37 for you today. So here, here's what you can do. You can either just listen and just hear my translation and then go back and read it and see, see how off was Dale. Or you can read along and it's going to be way different. And then you can just kind of see where it fits. Um, but basically what I've done is I've taken Genesis 37, I've contextualized it. Um, a little bit. I don't do this very often because, uh, I don't know, someone might call me sinful for doing it, but I just want to give you this. I want to try it out, and hopefully you'll be able to feel this a little bit more in your gut, this story, because it's a hardcore story, and it's, it's real, and it's true, and um, I want you to feel it a little more close to home today. So I'm going to be telling you Genesis 37, then we're going to be in Genesis 39 after that, and I'll be actually reading from the Bible. So don't worry, we're reading from the Bible today. Um, in, in a correct translation. But here we go. Genesis 37, New Dale translation. <laughs> there once was a dude named Joseph. When he was 15, he started working at one of his parents' Filipino bakeries on 45th and Imperial. One day, as a 17-year-old, he was working with two of his slacker brothers, and while making pandasol, they were Snapchatting with some girls. 
Joe was sick of his lazy brothers and went to his dad's house on market to complain. He snitched on them. He snitched real good. Dad was mad. Now, dad loved Joe more than any of his other sons because he had Joe when he was super old. So his dad, Israel, gave his son his beautiful 1980s vintage Raiders starter jacket. When all his brothers saw this, they hated Joe even more. Whenever he wasn't around, <clears throat> they talked major trash on him. They often referred to him as Josefina. One day, Joe had a dream, and so he told his brothers about this dream. Check it. All of us brothers were making lumpia, when all of a sudden, your lumpia bowed down to my lumpia. Fool, they said. Josefina, you really think you're going to be in charge of us one day? From that day on, they hated him even more. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had? Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this in mind. Then one night, their dad said to Joe, your brothers are working at the market in Skyline, and they are not answering their cell phones. Go see if they are busy, in case one of them can come help us at the bakery. When Joe got to the parking lot, the store had a close sign up during business hours. There's a dude out front drinking some Remy Martin in a bag, and he asked Joe, hey, what you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they went? I saw them head over to the Dago bar on 65th, the man said. This was getting old for Joe. When he got to the parking lot at the bar, he was exhausted, but his evening was only beginning. His brothers saw him through the window. They saw him pull up in the lot and decided the only way to be rid of Joe was to kill him. They figured they could kill him and blame it on a rival gang. So a couple of the brothers cautiously showed each other their 9mm Glocks and headed towards the door. One of the brothers, Reuben, put his arms on the others. He was concerned for Joe, so he said, Hey, <clears throat> let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in that storage room in the back of the bar and lock him in. I have a key because I'm friends with Dave, the owner. That'll teach him a lesson, right? Reuben planned to come back to let him out. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stole his phone. They stripped off his raider jacket, threw him into the back room, and locked the door. Reuben left, knowing that he could come back and get him later. The bar was so loud, though, that no one could hear Joseph scream and bang on the doors. So they went back to drinking. They saw a cop enter the bar, though. One of the brothers, Judah, had a plan. Hey, if we kill Jojo, we could get life if we get caught. But if we frame him, he can go away for a long time. So the brothers figured out their story, and they approached the cop, telling him that Joe robbed them and beat them up. The cop called it in, and eventually Joe ended up in jail downtown. The brothers tore up the raider's jacket and brought it to Jacob, their dad, Israel. And he locked himself in his room for days, not eating or speaking to anyone. He told them he wanted to die. Now Joseph was given a, a very young public defender who was overworked, and so the defender encouraged him, just take the plea deal, man even though there was no evidence of Joseph doing anything wrong. So Joe ended up in a halfway house with an influential dude named Potiphar and his sketchy wife. But God gave Joseph favor. Okay, now I know that this was not the Bible exactly, 
Some of you know this is my paraphrase, this is my contextualization, but it's not that far off. And I want you to feel how real it is. Because when you read the story, you're like, oh, this is like a fairy tale. They're going to kill their brother. But when it's real and when it's here and someone's going to shoot someone, it's like, whoa, well, this is pretty harsh, right? Now, Joe, Joseph was not Filipino. He was Jewish. His brothers didn't turn him into the cops. They sold him to a slave trader. Eventually, he was sold to a man named Potiphar, who was an influential man in Egypt. And that is where we pick up the real, actual Bible in Genesis 39. And now I'm going to read to you from Genesis 39. And when you read along, you'll actually see what I'm saying. So I hope that you'll forgive me for that. Y'all ready for Genesis 39? Here we go. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guards bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of the household and placed all he owned under his authority. From the time he put him in charge of the household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house. And he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife, man. No man, sorry. So how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me and screamed as lo- and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious. He had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. This is God's word. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you uh, that you are close to the fatherless, to those who have no advocates. We thank you that you care for the hopeless, and the helpless, that you pursue the hurting and you offer true joy. You offer peace. You offer salvation. You bring hope. God, I ask that that would be enough for us today. Would you teach us from your word? May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I have two points for you. And because I know all of you, I know that you're, this is going to hit home for some of you. This is two points on God's blessing as you suffer. Two points on God's blessing as you suffer. And our first point is this. Following God consistently brings admirers, not ease. Following God consistently brings admirers, but not ease. Verse 2, it said, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, serving in the household of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. So God is with Joseph, right? And even in his despicable slavery to the Egyptians, he finds favor. Even in prison, he finds favor, right? So Joseph has been sold against his will by his own kin, which I think is something that, you know, a lot of times we talk about pain, we talk about suffering, but what does it mean to have someone that you trust so much, someone you put all your trust in to betray you? I have to wonder if perhaps it was not prison that made him suffer as much as it was the betrayal from the people he loved. I don't know if you guys understand that. I think there are some people in the room who have been betrayed by people you love. But that may have been what hurt him more. Joseph had been sent off to Egypt to work as a house slave. And then I ask you, what does he do? He serves and glorifies God. I don't understand fully how he can do this, but this is what Joseph does. Now, I don't know about you, but when something wrong happens to me, when I feel like I'm wronged, I tend to feel like I get a free pass to how I can respond. I don't know if anybody else feels that way. Like, the Lord will allow me to be a jerk in this moment because so many people have hurt me. I tell you, um, what I would want to do is I would want to do the crappiest job imaginable. I would cut every dang corner possible. I would be the most passive, aggressive, enslaved person that you've ever met. Whatever I could get away with, now that's the big one, whatever I could get away with is what I would do. But that's not Joseph, is it? He worked hard in whatever he did, and it showed. His attentiveness was appreciated and rewarded, but he worked diligently, not for the reward, but for his God. And let me just tell you, um, this Bible verse was used in the 1800s in the United States to tell people that slaves should respond in a certain way. And I don't know how to rectify our history with this Bible here, but what I can tell you is that there is... Uh, unjust slavery that we don't respond to with just meekness. And for those of us who find ourselves in a place of authority, we have to respond even stronger against those who would manipulate the scripture. And I got into a fight with a landlord this week who was trying to oppress one of our neighbors, and I, I will always fight back if I have the chance when injustice happens, especially when someone says they're a Christian, but I'm going to not go on that aside before I get leveled up. So, um, there's two, the, the thing is, when we follow God, there's kind of two sides to it, aren't there? One that draws anger and one that people appreciate. And here we see that um, Joseph following God helps him and hurts him. And I think it's the same for us, isn't it? Honesty. Think about honesty. When someone says, hey, when your boss says, I'm just going to need you to cheat on this. I'm just going to need you to, to sign off that this was last week. I'm just going to need you to do this because I can't pay for any overtime, so I just need you to lie. <clears throat> when you say, no, they won't like you. However, 
People want to be around honest people, don't they? Even if they are caught in lies, they find themselves attracted to honest people. How about this? Gossip. People love to gossip. I love to gossip. It's fun. It's tasty. It's like spicy food. You know, it feels good on your tongue. People love to gossip. But when someone gossips around you and you don't join them, and instead you talk positively about the person who's not present, you are throwing water on a fire and it bothers them, and you bother them in that moment. In the same way, people want someone they know will not talk behind their back, don't they? And they can trust that you're not talking behind their back because you wouldn't talk behind anyone else's back. So here's the thing. They like knowing you won't talk smack on them. That's a real thing. So in many ways, there's a double-edged sword, isn't there, to being a godly person. People may dislike you and respect you at the same time. And that is what Joseph has found. Fighting for what is right, though, will never be fully in style. But God calls us to it. There will be seasons when everyone around you is telling you to disobey God, and no one will know if you do or not. But your faithfulness is a beautiful thing to God. Eleanor Roosevelt, she says it this way. She says, you have to accept whatever comes, and the only important thing is that you meet it with courage and with the best that you have to give. The way we respond says a lot about who we follow. Think about Colossians Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Now, some of you have told me about your terrible bosses, corrupt, terrible, selfish, and yet God can still use you in their lives. I'm not saying you should stay at awful jobs for the rest of your life, but I am saying as long as you are there, you can represent your Savior to them. As long as you are there, you can serve and worship your Savior. And that is what Joseph is doing. At this moment, there's no way out. And so he has decided he's going to follow his God, even though he's not there justly. Indian pastor Jadu's son, Bhaskar Jaraj, says this, Perhaps it would change our attitudes to our employers if we remembered that in all things, God is shaping us so we may be useful in his service. Now let me continue on to verse 7, if you'll join me. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me, but he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house, and he has put all he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? This is not just a sin against people. This is a sin against God. Even if Joseph could not convince Potiphar's wife of her sin against her husband, he made sure to let her know that this betrays God himself. Even if no one found out, God would know. And so Joseph overcame temptation, but he didn't stay long enough to find out how long he could last. Now, for those of you who know me or can see my gut from the the congregation, I like food. And I like any food that has sugar in it, especially. And uh, like I have to eat gluten-free food. And when they make gluten-free food, a lot of times they'll just take the wheat out and throw in more sugar. And it just, you know, I like it. And my stomach likes it and it stays with me. And so I don't have very much self-control with food, okay? I'm just going to be real honest with you. Um, I don't have a lot of self-control with food. But 
I do have some self-control with not bringing that food into my house. So my birthday, June 6th, recently, what my wife does every year is she makes me a thing of Rice Krispie Treats. And I love Rice Krispie Treats more than anything. And this is not an invitation for you to give me Rice Krispie Treats. Matter of fact, this is me telling you, devil, get behind me. Don't give me Rice Krispie Treats. The problem with my birthday is that the next week is Father's Day. And so sometimes I will get a platter of Rice Krispie Treats. And it's like I'm inviting y'all over on those days, like, please eat some of these Rice Krispie Treats because I can sit down in one sitting and I could polish off a whole pan of Rice Krispie Treats. It's my favorite food. It's amazing. It's crispy, it's chewy, and it's sugary, and it's got a little salt. It's so good. I don't know why I'm talking about this, but it's Rice Krispie Treats so good. I won't put them in my house. I won't put them in my house. Why? Because I don't trust myself with Rice Krispie Treats. Now, it's a, a big stretch to go from Rice Krispie Treats to uh, sex. Um, but I will say the same thing, that A, I, like, I'm not saying any of you women in this room are bad people. I'm not saying that I'm like some scumbag that would like to be alone with you and like do something. But it's why you'll never meet alone with me. Because there's just no room for air there. And I will tell you that if you need to meet with me, I will do everything I can to make sure that someone else is there so that it's never a hindrance in us meeting, but I just won't do it. And in the same way, Joseph has to be very careful here. And it's why it's on this occasion when he's alone that Joseph finds himself in a predicament he doesn't want to be in. Now, let me say this to you women. Women are not evil. I do not believe most women are going to be some salacious cougar like Potiphar's wife. And sex is not evil either. The opposite sex is not evil, whoever you are. But I still believe boundaries are healthy. Sometimes when you text me, ladies, and I text my wife with you, I'm not saying anything about you. It's just something I do with everyone. So don't ever feel offended when you get that response, and my wife is on the other end as well. Um, even still, let me say this. I have met people who try to do this well, and they're just jerks, and they're just jerks. And so we have to figure out how we interact with people who are different, uh, the opposite gender as, as us, and still show them respect and kindness, and not treat them like they're going to do something evil. That's not what this is about. This is about propriety, and this is about that you can never be accused, they can never be accused, and you can have a better relationship here if you have appropriate boundaries. So Joseph just happened to be in a place where there were no boundaries and he could have got in trouble. So I know this is hard for us because we put our identity in sex here in the American culture. Um, but Jim Rome, who is a talk show host for uh, sports, he says this every time. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of Jim Rome, but he's kind of, a, he's kind of annoying sometimes. But here's what Jim Rome says. Every time some baseball coach, football coach, president, whoever gets in trouble, um, it's often for one reason, um, and a much higher reason than money is sex. And this is what Jim Rome says every time. The undefeated and still heavyweight champion of the history of the world, sex. So friends, I ask you, what situations do you put yourself in? Women, if your boss is encouraging you to be alone with him all the time, men, if your boss is encouraging you to be alone with her all the time, I would see if you could find ways to respectfully move them to a more public place. Um, women, if a boss, men and women, this can happen to men too, I would just say if a boss is making advances, it's wrong. If a boss is making advances to you, turn them in, okay? Because they are using their power to, uh, uh, I would say, abuse you, okay? 
Um, so turn them in, and let me just say, you're probably not the only one who they're doing this to, and so this is your job to protect those around you. And let me just say this too, this will hurt your job. This will hurt your job. Doing the right thing will probably hurt your job, okay? So it's not like Joseph did the right thing, and suddenly God was like, cool, all right, yeah, good job, Joseph. Well, let's just put you in charge of everything. No, Joseph did the right thing. He went to prison. He went to prison for doing the right thing. So if you do the right thing, could it hurt you? Heck to the yes. It hurt Joseph, but doing the right thing has never been about what we get out of it. So verse 14, she called her household servants. Look, she said to him, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. So I just want to point out something about this. This woman derides Joseph and even makes what I think are racist remarks here. Like, I think she is using his race, his ethnicity against him. She draws attention to the fact that he's from another country. This is not complimentary, is it? She's not saying, this wonderful Hebrew is here and he made advances on me. No, 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 no. Like, when someone says it that way, we know what she's saying. She's saying, this non-Egyptian who thinks he's better than us, and she's certainly mad at him, has come into this. Now, one author paraphrases it this way. He says, you brought a black, Latino, Asian, Indian man into our home to insult us. Although, he says, more than likely an offensive slur would have been used here. So let me just say this. Where have we seen this before? I'm going to tell you a story. A woman from the dominant culture accusing someone from the minority culture of something salacious is not new to us in our culture, is it? In 1955, in Money, Mississippi, a 20-year-old white woman named Carolyn Bryant accused a 14-year-old boy named Emmett Lewis Till of grabbing her by the hips and cursing at her while making sexual advances upon her. Her husband and his brother mercilessly mutilated and killed Emmett and tried to hide his body in a lake. He was found. And I don't know if you know the story, but his mother was so upset at the abuse and lynching that happened to her baby that she had his body put on display so that everyone could see the horror of what was being done to her son. And many believe this helped change things for civil rights. When Rosa Parks, now I just got back from Birmingham, Alabama, and Montgomery, Alabama, where I went to these museums and I learned more about this. When Rosa Parks refused to sit on the back of the bus, she was thinking about young Emmett Till who had been abused all because he made a white woman uncomfortable and he was black. And by the way, we have learned since that he didn't say quite what she said. The all-white jury acquitted them of murder, even though jury members later claimed they knew they were guilty. But they were quoted as saying that they voted not guilty as a way to warn other blacks. Of course, not being able to be tried again because of this double jeopardy, the men admitted to killing the child. But there was nothing to be done at that point. Only in 2007 did Caroline admit that she had made the majority of the story up. And friends, this was not published until 2017. 2017 that this atrocity happened. He never grabbed her, she said. He never cursed at her or made sexual advances at her. But a family is still left without a young child who has never, known, who has never had the chance to graduate high school, He's never had the chance to marry or have his own children. That was Emmett Till. And that was an example when someone from the minority culture, they were not listened to or heard or believed. And here Joseph, 
uh, gets to live, but finds himself in a hard situation as well. Now, Joseph didn't deserve the treatment he had received, and yet he ended up in prison. And that's our second point. God's blessing looks weird at times. God's blessing looks weird at times. This is a theological language I'm using. God's blessing looks weird at times. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. Yo, I have a lot of scripture today that I'm throwing at you guys, and I hope that you're able to absorb some of it. Sorry about the fire hose, but I'm a little excited to get back in the pulpit. So how does this translate? Joseph had done the right thing only to deal with this. Now, I question this. Why did Potiphar send him to the king's prison? Do you find that interesting? Why did Potiphar send him to the king's prison? Like, was the king's prison close by and that's why? I kind of doubt it. I kind of doubt it. Here's what I'm thinking. Did he secretly feel guilty and he know that maybe Joseph was a good dude? Had his wife done something like this before? Fact is, the death penalty was a common punishment for something like this. Potiphar had the power to do it. He was a powerful man. So why did he get sent to a nicer prison than other prisons? The king's prison. Now, um, does anyone know the term ball don't lie? Has anyone ever heard that before? So uh, in basketball, um, in, in the basketball sport, um, if, uh, if you get a foul uh, against someone else and you get to shoot and you know, you know they didn't foul you. Like, you know, sometimes you see someone fall down on the ground um, even when they didn't do anything. Yeah, okay. I'm not going to point out anybody here because I, I could get in trouble. But let me just say, sometimes when you fake a foul, you miss your shots, don't you? That's what ball don't lie is. It's, I almost think it's like you feel guilty, and so you miss because you know you weren't really fouled. Here, I kind of wonder if ball don't lie comes into effect with Potiphar. Man, Joseph seemed like a really good dude. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess Potiphar knew his wife by the fruit in her life. Like maybe this wasn't the first time, right? So he puts Joseph in this place that's a little bit nicer. Joseph had done the right thing. Joseph had the blessing of God. And you know that jo Joseph's situation was still terrible, though, right? Like a prison back then, th th what kind of an amenities would they have had? What kind of rights would a person have had? Now, the late English Bible scholar Joyce Baldwin, she had this to say. At this time, there was little cause for hope, only isolation and loneliness. Though Joseph had displeased his human master, the Lord God was well pleased with him and caused him to... Uh, prosper. He was not, after all, alone. Now, I don't know why I'm on the civil rights thing for y'all today, but I was in Montgomery and Birmingham, so I'm just going to have to tell you another story. Um, all right, thank you. I love it when people talk to me. Thank you. Um, there's a man named Solomon Northrup. He was a free man who lived in New York in 1841 and sold into slavery. When he was first captured, he penned these words. If I could not be that, that a free citizen, if it, sorry, it could not be that a free citizen of New York who had wronged no man nor violated any law should be dealt with this inhumanely. The more I contemplated my situation, however, the more I became confirmed in my suspicions. It was a desolate thought indeed. I felt there was no trust or mercy in, unfeel, in unfeeling man. And commending myself to the God of the oppressed, bowed my head upon my fettered hands and wept most bitterly. 
These are the words of Solomon Northrup in his book, 12 Years a Slave. As the title suggests, Solomon was enslaved for 12 years and treated brutally. At times, they forced him to whip and enslave other people, his own people. If you've ever seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, um, you know what I'm talking about. Whipping a woman for going off the campus to get soap to clean herself. This is the kind of terror that Solomon lived in. And he didn't deserve it. And no one deserves it, but he, he had already tasted freedom and found himself in slavery. Upon freedom, Northrop writes this, but I forbear, chastened and subdued in spirit by the sufferings I have borne, and thankful that good being through whose mercy I have been restored to happiness and liberty, I hope henceforth to lead an upright, though lowly life, and rest at last in the churchyard where my father sleeps. Here's the thing. This terrible, heinous act done to Solomon, this atrocity of chattel slavery that had been thrust upon him helped him to put brutality into words, words that would taste bitter in a slave owner's mouth as he read these words. But I ask you, is that what blessing looks like? What about those who didn't make it out? And let me just say this to you. Christian, you can wrestle with this. You can say, ah, well, but where's God for these people? Where was God for the people who didn't make it out? Where, were God, where was God for the people who, who never found it? And, and here's what I love. You guys, look to the Psalms. If you look to the Psalms, one-third of the Psalms are lament. People questioning God. When you're questioning God, this is the place to be because we read the Bible and the Bible questions God at times. The Bible shows the words of people who go, God, if you're so great, why is this happening? It's okay to be there. God, if you love me so much, why would I suffer like this? It's okay to be there. Let me read you Psalm 37, 7 through 10. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by the one who prospers in his way. By the person who carries out evil plans, refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But you read this and you go, but, but when, Lord? When will the tears cease? When will the whippings end? When will my slavery end? When will I stop being mistreated? When will this end? When will this hardship in my life end? And I tell you, all I can tell you to do is to go to him. Is to go to him. 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul speaks to his young apprentice, Timothy, and he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Instead, share in the suffering of the gospel, relying on the power of God. I wish I could tell you that to follow Jesus meant to have prosperity in many of the ways uh, some pastors might tell you, but I look at the Bible and I don't see the same kind of prosperity we want to have. I don't see the big house all the time. I don't see freedom from addiction every single time in the way we'd like to see it. That doesn't mean God doesn't free us from addiction. It doesn't mean God doesn't provide us a house. But sometimes, sometimes Paul talks about, I got this little thorn in my side and it's driving me crazy. And I've prayed over and over and over and over for God to take it away. But his grace is sufficient still, even as you struggle. 
Many of you are suffering under the mental of, men, of, of mental illness. Many of you are suffering from mental illness. And you say, how long, O oh Lord? Some of you are suffering from addiction to drugs, alcohol, pornography, and you ask God, how long till you free me? Some of you are trapped just by a rough job. Some of you feel enslaved to a body that doesn't work when it's supposed to. Others of you feel chained to your illness. You feel confined and hopeless. Some of you feel trapped in a marriage. And if you're being abused, I tell you, get out. Don't be trapped in that. But some of you feel trapped. Some of you feel trapped by poverty. Here's the thing. God may not free you from all these things. But he's very present, and he knows what it means to suffer. And he knows what it means to struggle. Because he did. The Bible says that Jesus is not unable to sympathize unable to empathize with what we feel because he suffered along with us. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Friends, you were trying this alone. We were trying this alone. And yet God reached down into this world and did something about it. We were suffering on our own, trying to make ourselves into God, trying to put ourselves on the throne. And every time we messed it up, we were enemies of God. And here's what he did. He sent his son to this earth. God came to this earth put on a suit of flesh and took on every pain and suffering that we deal with. He took on disease and the flu. He took on what it meant to try to earn a living. He took on what it meant to have parents who oversaw him. He took on what it meant to have friends and neighbors and people he loved die. And ultimately, he took on what it meant to be trash-talked about, right? Like we know, people hated him for who he was. And then he willingly gave his life and suffered on the cross so we might have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And then after he died, he rose again on the third day, illustrating to us that he has power over sin and he has power over our death. That is the goodness of our God, Jesus. And I tell you, it's hard to say to someone, yes, it's really bad right now, but he's here. Sometimes that feels kind of like, not very helpful, does it? Like, really? That's what you're going to say to me? How about this one? Yes, it's really bad, but one day he will come. That's hard to hear. But I tell you, he is still good, loves you no less, and is still present. So even though it's hard to hear, know that he is with you. I want to just uh, conclude with this. Uh, as I prayed this morning, um, I, uh, I started, I don't know why, I started thinking about a man I know named Randy. Um, Randy is this guy that you just want to be around. Like everything, like everything about him is so dang cool, you know? Like he's old and uh, he's quadriplegic, but everything about me wanted to be around Randy. Now, Randy used to be super cool and super fit, like in all the ways that like Joseph was. Um, he was like known for his like washboard abs and like being buff and all that stuff. And then one day he, he dove into some water and he became quadriplegic. Now I will tell you this. I spent a lot of time around Randy and it was not his cool buff abs that brought anybody to no faith. It was when he was in a wheelchair, suffering, unable to feed himself, needing help to do the most simple things like go to the bathroom, to take a shower, to take a bath, to have a dog with him at all times, to do the simple things he needed to do, to not be able to drive easily, but to have a joystick and have to work through what that means. He suffered. But in Randy's suffering, God was glorified. 
In Randy's suffering, God was glorified. And I tell you, you're suffering now. And you may feel like, you know what? I don't want to glorify God. Or, you know, I want him to take this away. And I say, what if, what if, what if this suffering is meant for God's glory? I can't tell you that when it's just us, me and you. Because you know what? This is jerky. But here, to all of you guys, I can say that. And I will tell you, um, on February 3rd, 2013, I was watching the Super Bowl. And uh, I remember it was that, the Baltimore game when uh, all the, the lights went out. Do you guys remember that blackout? And we're just sitting around waiting for, for the game to get back on, um, hoping that there would be some change because uh, we wanted to, I don't remember who we wanted to win. But I will, t- I will tell you this, we got a phone call. And you guys all know about this phone call, right? When the, the ring sounds different, even though it's the same ring, you know something's wrong. Picked up the phone, I was like, what's going on? And they said, Randy's dead. And I remember hearing about it, that Randy had some kind of medical thing happen to him. And he was driving in his car with his wife and his dog, and they went over a bridge and they died. Randy was going to come on staff at our church. Nobody knew that yet. Um, Randy was amazing, and I loved him. And I remember it was that day I just got out of the hospital, and I led worship for the first time after being in the hospital for over a week when my appendix burst. And I remember Randy coming up to me and hugging me in his chair, and his wife coming up to me and hugging me and saying, we've been praying so much for you. We're so glad that you're okay and that you've made it out of the hospital. And that was my last interaction with Randy. But then... We had a funeral. Thousands of people showed up and heard the gospel because Randy suffered well. Because Randy suffered well. And I tell you, friends, as you suffer, you can either be the kind of guy that I feel like I would like to be, where I'm like, oh, he's not around? Okay, well, I'm not doing any of this work. Or you can be someone like Randy. Or you can be someone like Joseph, who in your suffering, in your pain, in your hurt, even if you can't move your legs, even if you can barely move your arms because they're so crippled that they have to, like, they're curled up like this, you can choose to follow God and worship God and give him the glory anyway. And it hurts. And it sucks. And if you have depression, you can do the same thing. And if you have people around you that are negative, you can do the same thing. And if your job is hard, you can do the same thing. But let me tell you this. When you glorify God with your life, you will suffer. And when you suffer, you can glorify God with your life. But I tell you, it makes a difference. And you can affect generations with it. God is not interested in happiness. Happiness comes and goes. That word is based on the word happenstance. It means just like, I'm cool if something good is happening right now, and I'm mad if something bad is happening. No, God's not interested in happiness. God is interested in a deep and abiding joy. And it is only storms that will cause your roots to go down deep in the soil. It is only through hardship that your roots will dig deep into God. And it's only Jesus who makes that possible. And so I tell you, if you are suffering and you are far from Jesus, if you don't know who Jesus is, cling to him now. Pray to him now. Ask him for help. And you know what? He's good to listen and he will respond. I hope, friends, that we will be more and more like Joseph more and more like Randy, and less and less like who I think I would be just trying to get out of work. Would you guys pray with me? 
God, we thank you that you love us and care for us, and that when we are rooted in you, true hope comes. That we are rooted in you, you give us joy that transcends happiness. God, would you help us to understand that in the depth of our being? Would our roots dig down deep? And it's in this moment, Lord, that we come to you and we confess that we have gone against you in many ways. And so, friends, in the silence of this moment, would you bring your sins and confess them to our God? God, we thank you that when you see us who have confessed Jesus as Lord of our life, um, you see Jesus. That when uh, you see sin, you, you, you saw it thrust upon our Savior. So God, what it means for us to look justified to you, us to look right in your eyes, is such a blessing. As far as the east is from the west, so our sin is from your sight. And we just want to say thank you. And we just ask that as we continue forward, we would stay rooted in you, in your gospel, in your love, and that we would trust you. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.